Hello and welcome to Super Saturdays, a comic book media podcast where each episode will be focusing on your favorite comic books, TV shows, and movies to figure out if these projects will stand the test of time. I'm Damon A. And on today's episode, we have a very, very, very special guest. Uh, hi there. Uh, I'm Josh Trujillo. I'm a comic book guy and a video game guy. I'm the writer of Blue Beetle, uh, published monthly from DC Comics and all sorts of other stuff. All right. Well, without further ado. On with the show. It is fantastic to really have you on the show. And honestly, I'm really honored to have you here. Seriously. Uh, I know you already gave yourself an introduction, but you want to talk a little bit more about what it is that you work on and everything again? Yeah, so I've been lucky enough to work for a lot of characters that people know. You know, um, I've done Captain America, Rick and Morty. Um, I've written a, a Superman and a Batman. Um, I, I do a lot of nonfiction stuff as well. I have a book that came out last year uh, called Washington's Gay General. That's a true story or a true legend, at least. And uh, all sorts of cool stuff coming up dope dope all right well we have a couple segments before we get into the actual interview of this episode so we have our first segment which is a comment spotlight so soups a couple episodes ago we had an episode where we were ranking wonder woman's different costumes that was with my friend yaz and we have a comment from matthew haggerty he says I'll go Earth 52 Wonder Woman and Rebirth Wonder Woman. I'm assuming he meant New 52. But honestly, I think those are some really good picks. Um, Josh, you've worked with Wonder Woman before. In your opinion, what's your favorite costume or look you've seen her have in the comics? Yeah, I remember I wrote uh, Wonder Woman Agent of Peace number something, 25, something like that. Anyway, I was like, oh, we got to dress her up, right? Like, you got to do kind of the Wonder Woman... uh, the style of it. So I like spent too much time like looking up like high fashion outfits. So I gave her like this big blue dress that's like $10,000 or something. Cause that's what, that's how Diana goes. Um, beyond that, uh, I like the pants. Uh, I kind of like the new 52 Cliff Chang take on it. Like that works for me. Uh, but the classic outfit's great. I, um, the way that it's going to Tom King's run right now is like every panel is gorgeous. Honestly, I'm in the same boat. Oh, when I was doing the episode with Yaz, I was, we, were, we actually talked about the New 52, uh, the pants version and everything. I really like that suit. And I think one of the things I liked about the New 52 designs, not just with Wonder Woman, but just with other heroes, was just like some of the line work within the paneling of like the suits was pretty cool. I liked the little star indents on Wonder Woman mm-hmm. stuff and everything. And I think like the dark blue, just, I don't know, just looked cool. It looked cool. It looked really cool. Yeah, it had a great color palette. It felt like uh, it still felt like Wonder Woman, right? It wasn't like she just like was wearing a pair of pants. Like it, it felt like a costume still. Exactly, exactly. I think like compared to when Jim Lee did the first um, time Wonder Woman had pants, I think the uh, the later design of the New Fifty Two with the pants that actually like it, it it was better of the two. It was a better version of the two. It felt more mm-hmm. in line with who Wonder Woman is compared to the first one. Still liked both of them though. But I think that one just felt more closer to her. So, Soups, we're not going to be doing a news roundup after all today. I just want to really get into this interview. So, are you ready to dive in, Josh? Let's do it. All right. So, let's dive in. A couple episodes ago, interviewed Cody Ziegler. And I want to keep having the reputation of doing research before each interview if I if I get other people on the show. So right here in my daily planet notebook, I have a lot of information about you and just like some questions in regards to Blue Beetle. So I really wanted to just talk about your career and everything like that. I know you touched on it a little bit within the introduction, but a couple of the things that you've worked on, you worked on Adventure Time, you've worked on Rick and Morty, uh, the comics, uh, you worked with Flash, Wonder Woman, and Superman, and you were also one of the writers for Guardian of the Galaxy, the Telltale game? Yeah, uh, my first video game. I really went from zero to 60 on that one. So what was that like working on a video game compared to comics? Like, was there like a different type of writing style that had to go with that? 
Oh yeah, for sure. It's like, uh, you know, in a comic, it's you, the artist, several other people. So maybe it's a small team. You know, when you're on a video game, it can be like hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, so like if I write a joke for like Rocket Raccoon, like my boss has to like it, the director has to like it, the voiceover guy has to like it, the actor has to like it to sell the joke in the voice booth. And so like by the time the game comes out, it's like, oh man, that was a really funny joke that Rocket made. Did you write that, Josh? And I'm like, I didn't really write that. Like, you know, it's like mm. we wrote it. That's kind of how I feel about it. I feel the same way about comics. It's like our story. It's not, it's never my, my story, but uh, in video games, it's especially like that. So it's like, it's way more collaborative and it's a lot more iterative. You write, you know, you write it a lot of times out of order based off of the needs of the mission. And there's just a lot of back and forth with like the realities of it. In a comic, you can draw everything you want. Usually in a video game, if you want them to sit in a chair, you have to make a chair. You have to 3D model a chair and you have to come up with posing and make sure the, the character model can actually do that. And so there's a lot of like under the hood stuff that's really interesting about making a video game that I'm still learning because these things are so complicated. Honestly, you, you taught me something because I had no idea that there was like a whole chain of command in regards to just like a singular joke or just even the writing process in general when it come, came down to video games. So I learned something new. So thank you for that. Um, that's awesome. So Josh, what was your first introduction to the comic book world? Like what really got you interested in comics and maybe even what really turned you towards working with comics? Uh, yeah. So like comics and animation or video games, that's kind of the only thing I've ever wanted to do. I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate, but like my grandparents would like read me the Sunday funnies. So like peanuts or Garfield or whatever, they'd like read me the comic. And so I was always like hooked on like kind of sequential art and like storytelling through art. Um, but then like, you know, I grew up kind of poor. We didn't have a lot of money for like comic books and we didn't have a comic shop in our area. It was the nineties. So comic shops would open really quickly and then close really quickly. Um, so I didn't read like the X-Men comics at the time or the Batman books. I had to catch up on them way later. Um, but like, I still knew that's what I wanted to do. I was always doodling and drawing my own comics. I drew like hundreds of like superhero ripoffs and then like horror ripoffs and like Buffy the Vampire and anime, like anything I could do. So I, I still didn't know how to make a comic, even though I was drawing and doodling them all day long. I f figured out pretty quickly that my art was never going to get to the point where people would kind of like look at me seriously as an artist. So I decided to kind of focus on the writing because that came a little bit easier for me. Um, out of high school, I had the opportunity. Uh, I had a friend who had a, an internship at Dark Horse Comics for their TV and film office, not their comic office. Mm -hmm. And they're like, do you want to take over this internship when I'm done? And I was like, oh, my God, like, yes. So basically, I like I, I ended my job, went into this unpaid internship full time for like six months. And I was like, desperate to break into comics. I thought this was going to be my big break. And so like I would, it was in Los Angeles and I lived more towards the desert at the time. So it's, it was like a two hour drive there and like a two hour drive back if I was lucky. Hmm. And so like, I didn't have any money for like gas and like I had to like beg my family basically for like, just for gas money or lunch money for, so I could eat while I was doing the internship. Hmm. But like, you know, you got to pay your dues. That's fine. Yeah, so I get that. I did that. And then I got, you know, the internship wound down and I, there wasn't a job waiting for me. So I got kind of depressed about it. Um, I got another internship at Archaea Comics, which is now part of Boom. But at the time, there was it was a very small publisher. The office had maybe like four people in it max. And so I got to see, instead of the TV and film side of comics, I got to see how comics were actually made every single step. And I got to be involved with every single step. I was proofreading comics. I was mailing them out. I was helping set up at conventions and work conventions. I was meeting creators. So at the end of that, I was like, oh, I know so much more. Now, now's my big break. And then that didn't come either. So I just kind of kept working in odd jobs. I worked in restaurants. I waited tables. I bartended for like 10 years. And then finally, I realized the only way anyone's going to let me make comics is if I make comics myself and prove that I can do it. So I started to save up um, my paychecks. Basically, every time I got paid, I would pay an artist for one page. And that's all I could afford at the time. Mm -hmm. So I got paid every other week 
So this meant I had, it took me about a year and a half to pay the artist to do my first full comic. And then I started to save up for the printing and then I started to save up for the next one and the next one and the next one. And so finally I like took those comics around and showed them to editors I had met at my internship and they were, they realized that I was like, I could do it. I was doing it. And so that was enough for them to start giving me opportunities where like, long story short, like through Kickstarters and self-publishing led to getting a gig writing Adventure Time graphic novels, led to Rick and Morty, led to my video game work. And so it's all kind of like snowballed there. But um, there's this writer, uh, Brian Michael Bendis, and he did like Ultimate Spider-Man and stuff. And he has this quote that's something like, um, you work in comics for 10 years before you get your first paycheck. And that's almost exactly to the day how it worked out for me. So a slow road to get there for sure. That's a long story. I'm sorry. No, that is an amazing story. I'm just taking a second because that was some very interesting and useful information because honestly, recently I've just been having a lot of thoughts on just how with life, the places you'll go, like so many different places mm-hmm. you'll go as long as you let yourself go there. And it's just, it's very interesting. And your story is pretty awesome because you're here, you're working on Blue Beetle and everything for DC Comics and stuff. Uh, so you were talking about your introduction to comics and everything like that. Who was your favorite comic book character before you actually started like getting into writing and everything for her? Yeah. So, um, you know, Blue Beetle didn't come out or the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle didn't come out until I was probably in like maybe 20, 19, something like that. Um, I was, I was older. And so growing up, I loved Batman comics, especially I loved Tim Drake Robin a lot. Um, but like the X-Men were my guys, like because of the animated series mostly. Like I think that's how a lot of people got into the X-Men who were around my age. But like Storm was my absolute favorite. Storm is my favorite. Like I would be so intimidated to write for her above maybe any other character. Uh, and so I loved that. Like Storm was the best, Batman was the best. But like, again, like we didn't really have like a lot of money to go to the comic book shop. So when we did get to go, we'd have to go into like the quarter bins and read comics that were kind of out of order or like jump into the middle of a storyline just based off whatever the shop had lying around. Mm. So I read a lot of like weird Fantastic Four comics where they're like sailors are going teaming up with Sinbad the sailor. And like, I was like, what is going on here? Wait, Sinbad so, the sailor? Yeah, he did, they did all sorts of wacky stuff in the, the Fantastic Four in the 90s. Wow. Um, and just like oddball. So I, I still loved the characters and the worlds of these comics, but I didn't know the stories. And so finally, when I got a little bit older, I started to have my own money and I'd go back and I'd buy reprints of the classic stories, like uh, all the X-Men stuff from the 90s, a lot of that, or Dark Phoenix Saga, or Batman, like Nightfall, all these things that I heard were like, oh, you got to read this. I finally got the chance to read it when I was a teenager. And so it was like, it was interesting to like say, oh, Storm's my favorite, but not really know any Storm comics. And then I go back back and learn about like her losing her powers and like becoming leader of the team and like the shadow king and all this other stuff and so like that was like the thrill for me is like oh yeah i liked her for a reason like i saw all his potential and so did the writers okay okay are have you been keeping up with x-men currently uh i'm a little behind right now on the krakoa stuff i i was all in for a while but it got too many books for for my budget unfortunately so i'm waiting till it's on all on the app and i'm gonna sit down and just make a week of it that's understandable honestly you know it's funny enough that we're talking about this because moving into march on the show we're doing a whole x-men event with march Mm -hmm. and i'm just meeting with different guests and we're just talking about x-men throughout and mutant throughout march so great stuff this leads me to my next question then actually um so about five years ago or, or like six years ago now is when you were approached by dc comics correct yeah i did a book uh called dodge city for boom and they saw from that they're like oh you kind of have a character that's a little bit like Jaime. maybe we could do something together uh, and that turned into this incredibly long road that led to me doing the blue beetle today so like again comics is slow you just have mm. to be really patient with it okay so like in that first meeting um because from what i gathered information wise you did develop a pitch and that pitch was a part of the round robin and there was some hype surrounding it um so my question actually is when it came to your pitch compared to what we have now with um graduation day and the ongoing run how different was the pitch back then compared to like what we're getting right now oh it's so different um 
you know, originally DC was like, maybe we'll do uh, a one shot or a mini series or something. And that, that kind of fizzled out time and time again. And it led to doing the round robin competition, which people might not remember was like uh, all these creative teams and would have characters and pitches and they basically compete against each other in like that March Madness kind of elimination tournament. And so the fans would vote on which books they wanted to succeed. So we were up against like, who were we up against back then? It was like Super Pets or like uh, Night Runner or like, uh, you know, Harley Quinn stuff or whatever. And so we got pretty far. We got far enough that DC let us do the first 10 pages of Graduation Day, which is our miniseries mm-hmm. pitched. Uh, but we lost. And so I thought that was the end of it. But, you know, it took maybe about a year and a half later before I got the call from DC again. And they're like, hey, we have this, we're ready to kind of bring Jaime back to prominence. There's a movie coming out and people are going to be really excited about Blue Beetle again. We want you to be the writer. So that miniseries is so different from kind of my original pitch, even though the first page, first 10 pages of Graduation Day are from a previous pitch. You just wouldn't notice. Does that make mm. sense? We yeah, that makes the first a lot of 10 sense. pages of this comic thinking the story was going to go one way, but then when we actually got to make the comic, the story went a completely different way. So it's kind of weird to kind of make that all feel cohesive. Uh, but like we, we, we really swerved because we wanted to play up some of these elements from the movie we wanted to integrate into the comic. Like we're not set in the movie universe. We're, we're in the, the big DC universe, the comic, but... Um, you know, it's like uh, Palmyra City, the new city that Jaime lives in, was introduced mm-hmm. in the movie, and there was an interest of like, you know, this could be Jaime's Gotham, this could be his metropolis. And so, you know, he has El Paso, it's kind of historically his background, and there are a lot of great stories there, but I saw this as kind of like, maybe Palmyra City is metropolis, and El Paso is kind of Smallville. Not that, not that El Paso is, is small, it's actually a pretty big city, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we also introduced uh, Victoria Cord, who is Ted Cord's sister. He's the second Blue Beetle. And she's kind of, a, she's the villain in the Blue Beetle movie. But in our book, she's a little more complicated than that. She's definitely walking this fine line between like villain and hero. And she's very pragmatic, kind of in a ruthless way. Honestly, because right before we hopped on this call, because, um, well, Soup's um people who've continuously watched the show i actually did a whole comic book review on graduation day and i loved it uh and i was reading everything i loved it i had to did a whole video on it i think i pronounced your last name incorrectly though so i'm sorry about that uh (laughs) i I love the mispronunciations i'm born with them well if you go back and watch it you'll see it but um and by the way that book stands the test of time here on the show uh but I remember actually going in there and reading it because um, at the time I watched the movie and I realized I didn't really know as much about Jaime and just the previous run that had came out and everything like that. And I was uh, doing a review in the movie on the movie and then went to Target. Boom. Saw graduation. And I was like, hmm, hmm. Ah, heard some people talk about it. I want to go ahead and read this. And uh, the introduction to Victoria Cord and even reading the ongoing series, because right before I hopped on, I actually finished reading, um, caught up to what's happening with, with the ongoing. Victoria Cord is a force. Uh, when it came to adding her into the story and everything, did you, um, what was the, the thoughts behind how you wanted to breathe, breathe life into this character? Actually, what was the thoughts behind how you wanted to breathe life into a lot of Jaime's supporting cast and then introducing the new supporting cast as well. Yeah. So what, what really, like, what was your thoughts? What was like your, you know, big thing you wanted to do with that? Or how, oh, or, you whatever, know, I yeah. try to do, um, I like the campsite rule for these characters. You know, you want to leave them in a little bit of a better place, hopefully than when you found them. But like for Victoria, DC wasn't like, you have to use Victoria. They're like, if you want, this would be a good time to introduce her. And it might give the books a little bit of attention. Well, they didn't realize how much I was going to obsess over her. She's maybe one of my favorite characters to write. Um, Because she's like, she's she's as smart as Ted Cord is, but she doesn't have maybe the same morality that he does. And Ted has a really small supporting cast. And so I love to beef that up as much as I can. But for Jaime, you know, it's his story. And kind of that interplay of like Ted Cord's his mentor and someone he trusts maybe more than anyone. But at the same time, he he doesn't necessarily trust Victoria. So that was really cool for me. And she's, you know, she's she's mostly good. I don't know. We'll see where she lands. 
but like supporting casts are big. Jaime is uh, the center of the universe. He's got the most powerful weapon in the DC universe on his back. But what really grounds him are his family and his friends and his community. So that was really important for me to get right. Like I wanted to do a family book, which sounds silly because I take him out of El Paso and take him away from his immediate family. But I, you know, it's about found, found family in a lot of ways. He's got Paco and Brenda, his best friends from the older comics. And now we've got the new Beatles, uh, Dynastis, our yellow beetle, and Natiza, our green beetle. And uh, Starfire's entered the book as a mentor figure for Jaime. And so, like, I just want a big, bubbling, high-energy cast where we, we can bounce a lot of things off of each other. Um, it's still Jaime's book. He's still, you know, it is Blue Beetle, the comic. Uh, but I think it's a lot stronger for having that supporting cast. I think you're doing a really good job with juggling that supporting cast because uh, even when I was reading Graduation Day first, I loved the inclusion. Of, you, you you literally played with all the toys in the, in the in the chest. You got all the DC characters that were in the, a lot of shit ton of them in that book, but mm -hmm. you would think that uh, it would have taken away from this being Jaime's story. But you actually did a really good job with juggling all of that, along with telling a really good Jaime story. And the same could be even be said, like you said, with the supporting cast of characters that are in the ongoing. Um, so you touched on Starfire and Ted as the mentors for Jaime. And honestly, that was one of my questions in here. Number one, I really liked seeing you write for uh, Ted and Jaime. Their, like, their relationship, their friendship is just fun to really watch. And just the interactions are really nice. And even down to having Starfire as a mentor. So Starfire being Jaime's mentor is something that's new. So um, when it came to you writing for Ted and Jaime, what was your approach to that? And then when it came to having Starfire as another mentor, um, wh where did the idea come from that? Like, what, what made you think Starfire? And yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll start with Starfire. Uh, but, you know, I at a convention when I was selling my own self-published comics, these black and white photocopied things. Uh, and I, I bumped, I was sitting next to uh, the actress who plays Starfire in the Teen Titans cartoons. And so I was just like gushing. I was starstruck. It's so funny. I don't care about real celebrities, but I care about like voiceover actors and stuff. Like that, that's when I get nervous. Uh, not that they're not real celebrities. You know what I mean? But, I know like, how you feel. Yeah. 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 So uh I was like, oh, I love Starfire. She's so cool and confident and she's a little bit ditzy. And I got shut down immediately. And she was, the actress was like, hey, Starfire isn't stupid and she's not naive and she's not ditzy. You know, some people are like street smart. Starfire is like space smart, but she's not in space. This is kind of her like slacking off or slumming it a little bit. When you take her on the moon, She's this, you know, unstoppable, fierce warrior princess character. And so I wanted to kind of capture that in her character here is where she, she's very emotional. She can, her emotions are just big. You know what I mean? She's not, mm -hmm. she's, she has like big, big, happy moments, big, sad moments. And for, for Jaime, as for why that connects to him, Jaime is really of these two worlds. He's of this kind of very grounded earth hero community. And then he's also got this like, cosmic destiny because he's got the scarab on his back so starfire was a great opportunity for me to kind of like have someone over his shoulder who could guide him and be like you know i see the other side of you and i don't i'm not threatened by your connection to the reach i'm not threatened by the scarab on your back as you know in graduation day the heroes are really skeptical of jaime and maybe his ability to like keep kajida in check kajida being the scarab um and so, you know, Starfire is just a great sounding board for that, I thought. Uh, and I just love the character. I, I mean, she's she's A-list as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and then as for Ted, it's kind of the other way. You know, Ted is, Ted never gets the, the, the credit he deserves. You know, he's always yeah. kind of being downplayed. He's always kind of a joke character when he's with Booster. But like Ted, one of the smartest people in the DC universe. He's one of the most experienced people in the DC universe. He's been on the, so many versions of the Justice League. He fought Doomsday. It didn't go very well, but he fought Doomsday. That's pretty good. Uh, and he's been all over space and time with his, his best friend. So, like, he's d done the hero life. And so Jaime can lear learn from him because Jaime is getting thrown into a lot of these fish-out-of-water situations constantly. 
And Ted's a character that's kind of been through that before. So I like that. And then also there's that legacy element, right? Because Ted Cord is the second Blue Beetle and Jaime is the third. So it really is Ted kind of looking out for the next generation uh, that has so much potential to either save the universe or, you know, potentially uh, destroy it, depending on uh, what happens with the scare. Nice. Um, in, in the video that I did for graduation day, one of the vibes that I got from the ways that you were writing um, or, or just the, just the interactions that Ted and um, Jaime were having, it kind of reminded me of Peter Parker and Miles Morales uh, and, and, and the fact that like, you know, two mentors who have the same moniker and all the other type of stuff, uh, which another question that I had for you uh, in regards to Starfire as a mentor when writing for Starfire within this book, does it require you having to like brush up on what's happening in Titans so that way you can just have an idea of where she's at right right then and there? Uh, yes and no. I think Tom Taylor is like knocking it out of the park with his Titans run. He's using all the toys and all the best characters. You know, he's got like uh, me and Adrian, the artist on Blue Beetle, you know, uh, my Blue Beetle brother, we we gush about Donna Troy. Like that's one of our favorite characters. So we're glad that she's like back and doing stuff again. But like, uh, what I tell people is that like, you know, if Sinestro has a new belt buckle, we don't have to worry about it. And if like, but if like the moon blows up in another comic, then we have to worry about it. So mm. when we, we're kind of a little cloistered away where we're not really dealing with the day to day. Um, all of our book, our book really lines up with Titans, but we're not like uh, a symbiotic relationship necessarily. So I got you know, you. Titans is a great spot to see like Starfire in her full glory. And if you like, the, if you love Starfire, come to Blue Beetle because we really give her a lot of moments to shine too, I think. Actually, you really do. I love every time that Starfire comes up in there and especially when I don't know if I want to spoil the recent books, but, you know, let's talk about it. Yeah, I don't um, know if you're a spoiler podcast or not. I'm happy to chat. We're a spoiler cut podcast. We spoil shit all the time. On top of that, we're an explicit podcast, so you can say anything you want. Uh, but, um, you know, I got to say, it was interesting seeing Jaime having to really debate whether or not he wanted to kill Blood Scarab. That was really interesting. Actually, this leads me to our next question. Blood Scarab was scary as hell. Cool as hell. Great design, actually. Oh, yeah. Adrian knocks it out of the park. 100%. When it came to introducing not only Blood Scarab, but also the other Beatles, was that a part of your original pitch or is that something that you decided to then add into this new um, going with the new run and everything? Uh, you know, uh, the Yellow Beetle, Dynastis, was always part of the equation. And I thought that maybe if we got a little more room, because originally it was going to be like a one shot or a smaller miniseries, and we got six issues. And that's, that's a lot these days. And so I knew we were able to introduce us, our, our second beetle, our green one, the Tiva. But um, the blood scarab was kind of like, oh, fingers crossed, I hope we get to tell this story. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, people, uh, you, 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 people love the colors. So it's like, oh, like here's, we got a blue one, a green one, a yellow one. When are you going to give us the red one? And it's like, oh, well, I'm not going to give you the red one you necessarily expect. So the blood scarab, you know, pure villain, inside it out or maybe not inside but definitely outside and you know uh he is basically this this evil sorcerer pharaoh from the the ancient egypt days who comes to possess an un unwilling victim and now is operating as the all-powerful blood scarab and he's out to get kaji da the the scarab on blue beetle and absorb its power because they have history that goes back thousands of years and so it really is this like this feud that's been going on way longer than Jaime even understands. And so I like the idea of a like building up uh, Kajida as more of a character in his own right instead of just being the voice and you know just being the tech guy, the guy in the ear. Um, and also I love uh, kind of playing into the magical side of the DC universe and Blue Beetle because as we know the Scarab it's a little bit high tech, alien tech, and it's a little bit magic because of interactions like Dr. Fate and Blood Scarab and the Atlantean Sorcerers and all this stuff. And so I like that the yellow and green beetles and Jaime come from the Reach, but the Blood Scarab, he is a, he's of magic. He is a, he's a pure magical being, and he has a different agenda than the other beetles do. I, 
I have in my notes the magic versus science was like something that I was not expecting when getting into the main run, the ongoing. Was that something you wanted to really just tackle and like thought it'd be really cool because Blue Beetle, Aliens, sci-fi, maybe like a little bit of body horror in there. Mm -hmm. And to my knowledge, uh, I don't think magic was really touched on previously with uh, Jaime. So, I mean, yeah. So was that something you always wanted to do initially or was it something that just was like, you know what, let's throw some magic in there? Uh, you know, I get the, I got this question during the round robin a lot before I was even writing this, Jaime. It was like, are you going to do magic stuff with the Scarab? Because there are there are some stories, not as many as the, the alien tech, but there are some stories where we kind of touch on Kajida's past. You know, he interacts with like the Phantom Stranger or like Dr. Fate, like I said. And they always kind of like wink and nod or the, the sorcerer Shazam. And they're like, what you have on your back is a mystical object. But it's, and so people are like, is it magic or is it science? And my answer to that is yes. It is all the thing. <laughs> and that time is, he's of these two worlds. He's alien and human. He's also magic and science. And that just makes his life way more complicated than it has any right to be. So I kind of love playing up with it. And then I, I want to use all these cool magical characters at DC. Like uh, we use Madame Xanadu in the Blood Scarab arc. Um, and then we use Tracy 13, Jaime's ex, who's a magic user in her own right in, in the Blood Scarab arc as well. So I just at least wanted to touch on it and explain kind of to the reader that like, there's always secrets in this with the Scarab. You never know exactly what Kajida is history is because it goes back millennia. So my next question for you, actually, I got a couple questions still, but my next question for you so far on your run writing for Blue Beetle, what has been your favorite thing that you've gotten to do with this character? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, introducing new characters is really exciting for me. I love to pull out old hits, like the Blood Scarab's a new version of kind of a, the original Dan Garrett, the original Blue Beetle, his villains. So he's like, Blood Scarab's basically the first Blue Beetle villain from the very beginning. But I like new characters, like the reinvention of Fadeaway Man is now Fadeaway. Or I'm bringing, I brought back gimmicks from Seven Soldiers. She's kind of an obscure character. But I, I like filling the toy box with all these toys. And I like to give uh, the DC Universe my as many cool ideas and concepts as I can. Um, so it's kind of it's more or less my 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 modus operandi in this in this case is like, how can I fill out Jaime's world and make it feel special and unique and not just like not just doing the, the classic Justice League every storyline. I gotcha, I gotcha. Honestly, I really liked seeing all the new things that were coming left and right with throughout graduation day and this ongoing run. And one of the things I kept thinking about in the back of my mind is that, you know, this, the best way to describe this is feels like an animated series. Like this mm -hmm. feels like so, it just feels really fun. And I honestly haven't read a book in a while that isn't just like, huge huge events left and right or the stakes are hella high stakes are high in this book guys but it's just a fun ride especially when it comes down to seeing Jaime grow as a character and seeing his interactions with everybody and going back to what we were talking about with the Beatles uh the band I'm, uh, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh but with the Beatles when it came under the other colors, I'm wondering, this is just a question I really was thinking when I first picked up Graduation Day, and I was like, you know, if I ever sit down with the writer, I want to ask this question. When it came down to the different colored Beatles, has anyone brought up any Power Rangers comparisons? Oh, they can't help it. I mean, you know, it's right there, right? But, um, you know, uh, Adrian's art is really inspired a lot of ways. He draws a lot of inspiration from, like, from like manga or like uh, Sentai, Sentai storytelling or like a lot of Japanese sensibilities from that art world kind of come into his. And he's a Spanish artist too. So it's really like this international unique flavor. I don't think there's anyone that draws exactly like Adrian. I don't even know what I'd compare him to in the US. He is, he's his own machine. And so, um, you know, the Power Ranger comparisons are, I'd say they're fair to a degree. There are multiple colored superheroes so I kind of get, I understand the vibes and there's definitely a Japanese flavor, but um, I'm not super, uh, I, I am a Power Rangers fan, but I'm, I'm not nowhere near caught up. I definitely don't know like the ins and outs of it too well yet. 
because I try to stay away. I don't want to accidentally copy something I, I, I read from like those great boom Power Ranger comics or whatever. So mm-hmm. um, I understand the similarities. I try, I try to make us our own thing and give us our own flavor, not just in the DC universe, but also like on the book stand. Like we are, there's no other book like it. We're unlike any Blue Beetle book that's came before in a lot of ways. Um, so I'm really, I'm really proud of what we do and kind of the, the flavor. Uh, what I really want though is I, you know, every morning I wake up to art from Adrian and usually it's like black and white because we have a different artist, Will Quintana is our colorist and he makes like the Beatles shine. Like that superhero armor, it feels powerful. It's incredible how good it looks on the page. And these black and white pages are honestly excellent in their own right. I want DC to shrink down Blue Beetle and make these little manga digests that can sit on the shelf alongside One Piece or Delicious Dungeon or whatever. Oh my that's, god, that'd that's be dope. My dream. That I would be people, dope. I want these little manga collections of Blue Beetle Graduation Day and uh, Scarab War and all that stuff. Um, but to, to kind of go back to your earlier question, because I just I had simply forgot it when I was in the middle of it. But <laughs> um, so the, the thing I'm most proud of is uh, maybe issue four of our Blood Scarab arc. It's kind of our date night issue. Uh, yes, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I feel like it's a high stakes issue. Everyone's talking about what to do about the blood scarab, what, what Jaime is going through. It's a very personal story. And, you know, we don't throw a single punch in that issue. And that's really hard to get, get that done. It's a comic book. We have 20 pages every month and people want explosions and big action. And I was afraid that people weren't going to be into it because it's, you know, it's a lot of emotional stuff. It's a lot of character work. And the reception to that, I think that's our best reviewed issue probably is the date night issue. So people love these characters. They want to see more interactions between them. And like, especially with the new Beatles, people are always asking me questions about Dynastus and Nativa. Honestly, I do think that was my favorite issue in the run so far. Uh, and I'll talk, I'm, I'm so rooting for Paco and Ziamara. I am oh, so rooting yeah, for them. You're shipping them, yeah. Yes, I am shipping. I am shipping. They're so cute. Uh, when it comes down to relationships, since you since you said date night, have you just thought about Jaime having a new love interest? Uh, yeah. Oh, for sure. You know, just on Twitter, I think yesterday, I was just kind of making a list because I was just bored and kind of, I'm always looking for inspiration, but I was just asking people, like, who's their favorite love interest for Jaime? Like, Tracy 13 is probably the biggest one, but he's had, he's had other romances uh, he's, you know, most of them have been kind of just like normal girls. So it's like he had a, a girlfriend, Naomi, briefly, or he didn't really kind of shoot his shot there. He has a lot of like people he's gone on dates with, but none of them have stuck. Um, we have a new, we have a new character we're introducing. She's of uh, the Horizon, which is an offshoot of the Reach. The Horizon are basically uh, refugees who have fled the Reach to live a more peaceful life, and Uli is the daughter of the leader of the horizon and she has uh she had definitely had a soft spot for jaime uh even though she's kind of a she's kind of a very strict and direct character mm-hmm. uh but it's clear that she has she likes him and i'm curious to see what jaime thinks about that he's still i think there's a lot more interplay that we're going to see in the next arc honestly i was that, that was another question that i actually had right here in my notes as well too because when i was reading it i was uh i was sitting there and i was thinking i was like I see sparks, or is that intended? Is that not intended? So I'm glad you did clear that up. So when that just brings me to the question about the horizon. At the end of graduation day, we have the fake out that it was the horizon that were coming. It wasn't the reach that was coming back to Earth. So what could we expect from the rest of the horizon as your run goes forward, as they get acclimated into just being on Earth? Yeah, um, you know, I, I like the idea that the reach who created the Kajida, the scarab you know they're not uh, a monolith you know they're a huge conquering alien uh alien race but they're that doesn't mean they're all evil conquerors right like it's it's basically like uh there are always other voices within these communities and we always got to lift up kind of like the peaceful voices the ones who have empathy and compassion and so the horizon came to Earth basically as their last hope, is that they came to Earth hoping that the heroes of Earth would protect them. And the truth of the matter is, if Jaime wasn't there to intervene, 
they would have been attacked by the Justice League, thinking that they were the Reach. And so they have this uneasy kind of tension living on Earth, you know, not just with the hero community, but also with the citizens of Palmyra City. You know, they are not thrilled about having all these space aliens in their backyard because they don't understand them. They don't, they fear them. And so we're kind of like doing this delicate storyline where we're going to see how kind of Palmyra City grows to either accept or reject the horizon. And then at the same time, the horizon are still learning about kind of human culture and all that, those attitudes. And so how do they react to this? You know, they've been isolated and not having to deal with other communities before. What happens when you put them in kind of this like really intense situation where they're dealing with supervillains every month? Um, so far, I'm, I'm, I'm queer. And seeing your representation when it comes to that side is amazing. And even seeing seeing the sides of um, Hispanic culture and everything. When I was reading Graduation Day, there was a whole page in Spanish. And I was at work. And mm-hmm. my coworker, she, um, my coworker, Sabrina, you listen to the show. Hi, Sabrina. Hi, so, Sabrina. <laughs> uh, so my coworker, and on top of that, she's excited for this uh, interview. She's not a comic book person, but I told her about... Uh, I told her about this. She was like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm going to watch it. But anyways, when I was at work, I was reading it and she knows Spanish fluently. So she's on the side of me and I like ask her, hey, could you read this? She read it and it was the page where it was uh, Jaime's aunts and they were just talking while they were at the diner. And she was like, that was really sweet. And I was like, I don't know what they said. She was like, and then she described it to me. I can't remember it at the moment. But what I'm going to say is it's really amazing seeing how just like, easily Spanish is just integrated in throughout the book and everything. It doesn't seem like out of place or anything like that. It's just naturally happening. When it came to you writing this, is this something that you always wanted to do when you were, when they told you, Hey, Josh, Blue Beetle, were you like, yo, I'm going to make sure I make sure representation is 100% what I'm going to do, but I'm going to have it so that it's just something that's natural. Something that just feels really true to these characters. I want to tell this story. Yeah, so, um, oh gosh, you know, uh, probably what got their, got DC's attention when I was doing um, that Dodge City comic was that it had a character who spoke Spanish, and we have untranslated Spanish. You know, you read comics, and usually they'll put them in parentheses, and you'll just understand that it's translated from whatever language it's supposed to be. But language is a big part of the Graduation Day arc, because not just, we we'd only, not only just have Spanish but we also have the language of the reach, which DC Comics created years ago and we're still using today. And so we have these three languages in the book. It's really a trilingual book in some ways. Um, And then beyond that, it's like, I wanted to portray Jaime and his culture and you know, my culture, I'm Latino too, I'm queer uh, authentically. And I, for me, that means conversations in Spanish and that's that's just natural life. That's just how it works. And so, you know, historically for these Blue Beetle comics, and this isn't like a knock on anything, but like they typically kind of slide into like a Spanglish, which Mm -hmm. is, it can be, it's very natural for certain speakers, but for me, it kind of, it rings untrue sometimes the way it's used, Uh, not in the book necessarily, but just all over, you know, you watch anything and it's like, there's a little bit of that Spanglish element. I wanted to have real conversations with these characters. So if you read the book and you don't read Spanish, you're totally cool. You can always pull up your phone and Google translate it with the, the app, but, or ask someone like you, like you asked them, that's also something I was hoping people would do and just communicate with the people in their lives. Cause that's communication is a lot of what is the secret sauce of graduation day. That's kind of how Jaime overcomes his problems is by empathy and communication. So I'm super proud of that. We know we publish an all Spanish edition of the book. Uh, and so not only do we have the English version that has a little bit of Spanish in it, but we have a full Spanish version for people who only read Spanish or are learning Spanish or are just curious for what's going on. And it's not like a gimmick from DC. It's like a real commitment from them to try to expand the readership and find new people who are reading it, which I think is so cool. Um, I was just hoping they'd let me put in a few lines of Spanish untranslated and they're like, no, they want to go all in. That's so, awesome. Um, but but again, like if you don't speak Spanish, it's totally cool. Um, you're not missing any major plot revelations or anything. But it's a little bit of character work, like the Tias. They're I think they were talking about um, this ghost hunter show that they watched together, or they talk about like going out to the bar, or like just like a little bit of characterization there. 
And we have a good team at DC that does the full Spanish translation. If you don't read the Spanish, if you don't read Spanish, uh, you can still enjoy the book. You're not missing any secrets, really. You're just missing a little bit of flavor. And I definitely encourage you to communicate and talk to the people in your life who speak Spanish. Not only are you going to learn a little bit something more about the Tias or Jaime or Jamara, uh, you might make a friend. You might get a new reader uh, who never read a comic book before. That is awesome. And I actually, my coworker, she does not read comics. And she was kind of interested after I told her about that. Um, that is so awesome, though. Like, wow. You know, it's, it's huge. I can't believe, like, it just shows how how far kind of we've come in terms of like, in terms of that, obviously there are people who still kind of get annoyed when they see they're confronted with a language they don't understand necessarily. Uh, there's this guy in Scotland who sends me mean tweets every time I use Spanish in the book. And I'm like, I'm sorry, dude, I know you live in Scotland. So you don't have like probably a lot of Spanish speaking people in your life, but like it takes one second to get your phone out and do some, do some translation with the app, you know? It's like mm -hmm. language is so available to us now. Like you can travel the world if you have your phone at your side. Hell, there probably was someone who already did a translation on Reddit or some, something like that, if that was the case. You never know. So yeah, tra technology really is on your side with that. I do have one more thing that I wanted to really mention. So Soups, at the end of issue one of the ongoing run, we then have the biggest cliffhanger that I was not expecting happen, happen within this run so far. So you ended the book with Ted Cord possibly dying. He's not dead soups. But when it came <laughs> <laughs> But when it came to you ending the issue like that, uh, I have one question, but like maybe two questions within this. When you sent this in to your editor, were they like, you can't kill Ted Cord? Or did they already know that, like, yo, he's not dead. He's just, like, badly injured. I mean, we're going to do something different. Was there some pushback? Was, like, was there an idea of actually killing Ted? Or were you like, no, I'm not going to kill Ted? Like, what was your thoughts behind that? No, I don't want to, like, spoil um, how my brain works. Because hopefully I'll make comics for a long time. But my rule is I don't, I don't want to kill something I didn't create. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, but for Ted in particular, he's been through the ringer. He got like impaled by Doomsday. He got mm. shot in the head by Maxwell Lord. He's, you know, he spent a lot of time bedridden, you know, so there's a joke that Ted Cord gets, goes from one hospital bed to the next. And that's a little bit true, but um, I feel for him. He's, he's a true hero. And I think that's what makes him so compelling is that he gets out of that bed and he goes to fight again. He doesn't give up. And that's what makes him a, a, so inspiring for Jaime in particular, because, you know, the book is about Jaime and, the last time Ted was kind of out of commission is what prompted Jaime to become the Blue Beetle in the first place. But now he's in a position where he knows Ted personally, he cares about Ted. And what happens when you lose one of your mentors? How does it send you spiraling or in a different direction than you thought you'd be? You know, Jaime asked these big questions about how he's going to deal with the blood scarab. And a lot of that is prompted by how vicious the blood scarab was against Ted. And so th that event kind of what happens to Ted is not just the uh, the spark that kind of lights our Scarab War up, but it also like really sends his, sis his sister, Victoria, like spiraling in a different direction. And I think she gets more extreme than we thought possible because of losing her tether to kind of her morality. I think that's all of my questions. And in some of the questions I had, you already answered within the conversation. Um, but... Honestly, this just before we wrap it up, I just want to say your current run on Blue Beetle, especially with the Scarab War and everything, it is so fun. It's great. Uh, Adrian is doing a really good job with the art and with the writing and soups. Go out and read it. And if I'm not mistaken, issue seven is going to be coming out this week or is it next week? Uh, I think it's. You know, I'm so bad about this. It's either the first Tuesday in March or the second Tuesday in March. Um, but uh, it's issue seven is our, our, our big beginning of our next arc. And it really follows up the big cliffhangers of issue six, our Scarab War arc. And it's also, also a tribute to this legendary creator named Keith Giffen. He was yep. a writer. He co-created Jaime Reyes. He created co-created Lobo, Ambush Bug, Maxwell Lord a lot of really meaningful characters in DC that have a lot of longevity. And so 
he passed away last year while we were doing our our Scarab War arc, and we didn't have necessarily the opportunity to do something special for him right in the middle of our storyline. But now we had a, a real great moment to do that. And so, like, he's just one of the legends, and like, I hope he'll his stuff will go on forever. But I want to make sure that we give him our tribute. And like, you know, Blue Beetle's about family and legacy, and so like, how could we not? So we do this fun, it's actually a fun issue. It's a big time travel adventure with Ted Cord, and we're going after Ted and we're with Booster Gold. We're gonna do kind of like a tour, our era's tour. We're going back to the eighties, basic the eighties. We're going back to in the far future. We're going in between time and we're going to a couple other surprise locations. So Jaime and Booster are going all over the time stream and continuity to, to save Ted Cord. And that's kind of the big pull of the issue. We have five artists on it, not counting our amazing color team and our letterer, Lucas Gattoni, but we've got Natasha Bustos, uh, Coley Hamner, who co-created Jaime Reyes. Uh, we've got Howard Porter and we've got uh, Scott Collins. And so it's really like an all-star team paying tribute to, to Keith and also pushing our story forward at the same time. If you've never read Blue Beetle, I would recommend this issue. It's a great window to not just Blue Be our book, but to the DC universe as a whole. And I think you'll get a real understanding of how important Keith Giffen was to DC Comics from the 80s, even today and beyond. So this is our love letter to him. And uh, I just want to do right by the guy. That is amazing. Um, I'm going to make sure I go ahead and get that from the comic book shops. Additionally, I honestly meant to mention this, but it was great seeing the core members of the Justice League International come to Ted's hospital bed when he was... Uh, after what happened with the blood scarab. Um, but wow. Thank you so much for sitting down with me, Josh. Really appreciate it. Seriously. No, thank you. I'll come back anytime. I'm so happy to chat with you. And thank you for really reading the book and like coming up with some great questions. Yeah, no problem at all. All right. Well, soups. Go check out Blue Beetle. Start with graduation day, then jump into the ongoing go do it. This is a really good book. And on top of that, the people who really are, have some interest in Jaime or they've wanted to see more Jaime stuff, this is your chance. Seriously. And be sure to let us know on Instagram at Super Saturday's Podcast, TikTok at Super Saturday's Pod, and Twitter at Super Saturday PC. Your messages and reviews can make their way on the show. This was Super Saturday's. I'm Damon. And I'm Josh. All right. And where can our soups find you oh man social media is changing like minute by minute i feel like but you can find me anywhere uh at lost his keys man i lost my keys man uh and so uh there's a josh Trujillo who who stole the domain from me a long time ago so i i, I gotta be something else but find me on lost his keys man at um but blue sky twitter i'm still calling it twitter uh instagram facebook anything you got uh find me find the book and definitely support uh, my artists, uh, Adrian Gutierrez, uh, Will Quintana on the colors, and we got Lucas Gattoni on letters. So we're Team Beetle. You know, we've been doing it from graduation day and round robin all the way to today. And creative teams change up so much in comics, you know. Sometimes within the same issue, you'll see them change artists. But uh, not us, man. It's We're a real, we're the Beatles, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but I did not mean that pun, but here we are. It was a good pun, though. It was a really good pun. <laughs> but as always, Zoops, see you next Saturday. Bye, guys.